Good morning, everyone. This is Pastor Troy Baum with the Raven Institute of Ministry and Biblical Studies. Coming to you live from our studios right here in Daytona Beach, Florida. Good to have everyone here with us this morning as we uh, continue in our study of the book of the Revelation. If you're joining us for the very first time, this is the Raven Institute of Ministry and Biblical Studies, which is a ministry of Raven Ministries International. If you would like more information on Raven Ministries International, you can actually go to our website, which is www.biggrace.com, www.bigg.com. G-R-A-C-E dot com and get more information on Raven Ministries International. We're here every day, Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 10 a.m. for an expository teaching in the Word of God. And like I said, we're, we've been studying, this is going to be our fourth class on the book of the Revelation. Uh, these classes are going to be up each week after we finish. We'll put them on our website. You can go and click on Raven Institute and those will be available for free download in MP3 format. Uh, you can take those, burn them onto a CD, whatever you'd like. They're absolutely not copyrighted. Share them and also send out a, your email. Let, let people know that we're here studying the Word of God every day, Monday through Friday. If you've got people that want to get in Bible teaching or come together and, and study the, the Word of God, we would love for them to join us. I would say this. If you've got questions today, if you're in our, uh, watching this live and you have inter, uh, questions you have, Please hold those questions until the end of the program. We'll be glad to answer those. Or you can send them to raven at biggrace.com, R-A-V-E-N at biggrace.com. And we'll be glad to enter, uh, answer any of your, your questions. If they're pertinent to our discussion on the book of the Revelation, we'll answer them right here live. If not, I'll be glad to answer them uh, through an email or I'll telephone you and we can talk in detail about that. But once again, good to have everyone here that's joining us, not just here in the United States, but we have people that join us from all around the world that download these classes later on uh, and... Uh, and join us for studying the Word of God. Folks, we don't pretend to know everything. I certainly don't. But uh, we are in a relentless pursuit of the truth of God's Word. And in this day and age in which we live, and the signs of the times and the events that are unfolding, not just here in our nation, the United States of America, but all over the world, it is going to be uh, doubly important for the body of Christ to get into the Word of God like never before. Because that's going to be your foundation. When there's going to be times that the economy's up, uh, or down, uh, you don't need to be swayed by the economy. You need to be uh, solidified in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I really encourage you to just to continue to study the Word of God. Uh, you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, I come here as a, a teacher and a vessel of someone made themselves available to the hand of God. But you need to get into the Word yourself. Check it out. If I say something that you think is just uh, kind of off the wall or you don't understand, challenge me on it. I appreciate that type of thing. And not only are you invited to do that, but you're really required and obligated to do that through the Word of God. I understand my role, is, according to James uh, chapter 3, verse 1, that not uh, many are to be teachers among you because upon you is a greater judgment. I realize the responsibility that I have as a teacher of the Word of God. And I welcome and invite you for your input on anything that I may say during the course of this program. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Just ask for his uh, guidance and direction today as we seek him out and uh, pray for those that have been sick among you. We won't call them all out uh, by name, but we believe in prayer and we believe that God answers prayer, uh, whatever uh, the need might be that uh, is confronting us. So, Father, we just come to you this morning in the precious holy name of your son, Jesus. And, Father, we thank you for just another, Lord God, tremendous opportunity, Lord God, to come and to, to know you, Lord God, to, to come and to, to take a look, Lord God, into this letter. Father, that's been revealed to us, Lord God, that was written to your son Jesus from you. And we just thank you for this opportunity today to come and set before your word, Lord God, this, this, this God-breathed word of life that's sent as a light, Lord God, into every dark area of our hearts and lives. And Father, we ask today in Jesus' name, Father, that you just come fill us with the, the wisdom and understanding. Father, even as we, we, we spoke yesterday about the, the spirit of wisdom and, and of knowledge and of understanding, Lord God, Father, we, we need that today. We have got to have the help of the Holy Spirit, who you promised, Lord God, would come and would lead and guide us into all truth. And even as you said, Lord God, in First John, that we have a, an unction from the Holy One, Lord God, that we have an anointing, Lord God, that we don't have need that anyone teaches. In other words, Lord God, we, we don't have need that we, uh, that, that, that we have an excuse, but Father, we have the Spirit of God inside of us, who, Lord God, wants to, to reveal to us, Lord God, even the deep things of God. And so, Father, today, we come and we ask you to cleanse us, to forgive us, to purge us from all sin and unrighteousness. Lord God, anything that would stand in the way of or impede, Lord God, our ability to hear and understand. Father, your word today, we 
just cast those things down. Every imagination, every distraction, Lord God, anything that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God, Father, we cast those things down. And, Father, we think on those things that are pure, those things that are holy, those things that are righteous, Lord God, those things that are just, Lord God. We think on those things, Lord God, and we come, Father, to fill our hearts and lives, Lord God, with your precious word. Father, we pray for those that are sick, Lord God, those that have been suffering physical afflictions, Lord God. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that you, you sent your word to heal us. And, Father, as we come, Lord God, to the written word, Father, we thank you, Lord God, for that, that, that logos, Lord God. We thank you, Lord God, for, for, for Jesus, Lord God, who, who came, Lord God, and bore, Lord God, our sicknesses, Lord God, and our infirmities, Lord God, upon his body, upon the cross of Calvary. So, Father, we rebuke sickness and disease, Lord God, and we command, Lord God, those things, Lord God, to cease and desist from their torment, Lord God, upon those that you've redeemed by your blood, Lord Jesus. And so, Father, touch, heal. Father, those who have been struggling, Lord God, uh, financially or in some other means, Lord God, we ask that you would just meet those needs, Lord God, today, Lord God, because you are our provider. Father, all these things we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Once again, good to have all you folks here today. Good to have Pastor Meredith uh, back with us. Uh, just as I mentioned, Pastor, uh, excuse me, uh, Sister Mercedes earlier. Good to have all you guys that, that, that have been in our, we're in our Romans class. And if you're listening to us on a delay or maybe you're just, uh, joining us for the very first time, uh, we went through 197 hours in a year's time on the book of Romans. If you want those, if you want, uh, uh a set of four CDs, uh, that have those available. I mean, you can actually email me at raven at biggrace.com. Be glad to send those out to you. Email me and give me your snail mail address. That's your physical address where you get mail at your home or office or whatever it may be. And I'll send you out those free of charge. Folks, you know, we, we just began really kind of the process of, 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 of opening a letter. And we talked about that. Now, I, I want you to just always be mindful of that. It's just like, you know, you get somebody, say you get a letter in the mail that belongs to somebody else and you pick it up and, and you read it. And, and within the, the confines of that, especially if it's a person letter. You know, it has personal information. It has things that are, or may not be uh, privy to someone else or may not be common knowledge, whatever terminology you want to use to that. And, and you get to read it and you get a, a deeper insight into how people feel. You know, there's been movies made about, you know, maybe somebody, their their grandparent died and they went up into the attic and they opened up an old hope chest or something and they begin to pull out letters and they begin to read these letters. Matter of fact, I think there was a, a story, a movie that was uh, pretty highly acclaimed a number of years ago that somebody got a, a letter or a notebook or something like that and begin to read a story of, of somebody in their family. Folks, it's the same way when we begin to open up the, not only just the Word of God, but specifically the book of the Revelation. It's like, it's like intercepting a letter or having a letter handed to us or finding it tucked away in a safe place and we get to open it up and we get to find out the deep things of God. And so, Father, I want you to, uh, folks, I want you to always realize that the Father has given us this through His Son, Jesus. And and, as he, and what He's doing with this, He's written it to His Son, Jesus, and He's in unveiling Himself to us. And so, this revelation or this unveiling has is, is come to us through, as it says, the angel of the Lord. And, it's, and he's taken the contents of this letter. And what he's done is it says he, he signified it to the Apostle John as he found himself isolated on this Isle of Patmos for, really for his preaching of the gospel. And we've said many times that isolation gives opportunity for revelation. And I encourage you that once again, get, get along with yourself, with the Holy Spirit, with the Word, and, and, and allow him to uh, reveal himself to you in a powerful way. And so what we've seen uh, being uh, associated with this reading, this hearing, this keeping of those things revealed in this letter, it, it's, it's that there's this, this revelation that has been brought to us directly from the Godhead himself. And it, it says, as, as the one who is and was and is to come, the Holy Spirit before the throne, and Jesus Christ who is the faithful one in those verses. And so now what we're going to do this morning, we're going to continue into, into that fifth verse of Revelation chapter 1 that we just barely yesterday just touched on just a little bit. But I'm going to read those first four verses to you. Then I'm going to read verse 5, and we're going to talk on it specifically this morning. And it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bore record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus and of all the things that he saw. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and they, they that keep these things which are written, therefore, for the time is at hand. John to the seven churches which are in uh, Asia, grace be unto you in peace, from which uh, is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now here's our verse that we're going to be looking at today. It says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. 
Folks, really, this verse right here, and, and I hope that you, you'll see it and I hope that you'll get it today. And, and, and I really pray now and as I prepared this that, 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 that you'd get it because you really have got to get this first, fifth verse for a whole lot of reasons. You're, and you're going you're gonna to find out today, hopefully by the end of this hour. You know, this, this verse really kind of demands or, and requires really special attention because of the implications that could happen if it's misinterpreted or misunderstood. What you've got to keep in mind uh, are the descriptive and the interpretive elements that, that, that he has given us already within the framework of the context of this so we can get the meaning of the verse. And, and I'll, I'll explain it to you. That's kind of wordy, but let me, I'll explain it to you as we go in. And we're going to go into a lot of detail. Is the, the reason that this verse, verse 5, really necessitates a lot of care and study from us is that it's been ripped from context by the cults and even uh, quote-unquote Christian Groups that have occultic teachings and uh, within Christendom to mean something other than what it says within its context. Folks, listen. When you're reading the scripture, you have got to keep things in context. There's been so many things that have been pulled out of context and people just use them for whatever reason. You know, we can think about, you know, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Will God cause the given? And people use that when they're taking up an offering. Folks, that's talking about the mercy of God. And you've got to just be careful on that. And so when I'm pulling out this fifth verse in the book of Revelation, I've got to make sure that I look and I see that he has given me the descriptive element. He's given me an interpretive element right here within the framework of this letter in order to determine really what he's saying to us. And you've got, you got to keep that in mind. And as I go into this, you'll see exactly why it's so important. And so what you're going to see here in this, in, in this verse are really kind of five, if I could use the term, five sub-phrases in this passage that describe who Jesus is. Folks, you've got to know who Jesus is in order to serve him in the way that, 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 that's required of us through faith. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at each one of them and we're going to deal with how they should be viewed and even we'll touch on how their misinterpretation and application can really change the entire complexion of what the Word of God is saying. And so I'm going to give you these five things in a list, and we're going to go back and we're going to look at each one of them. And this is just within the confines of that, that fifth verse that we, we read. Number one, it says that he is the faithful witness. He is the faithful witness. Deb's going to put them on the screen, but you can, you can write those down yourself as well. Second thing, he says he is the first begotten of the dead. He is the first begotten of the dead. The third thing says, He is the prince of the kings of the earth. He is the prince of the kings of the earth. Fourthly, it says that He loved us. And fifthly, it says that He washes us from our sins in His own blood. You know, those, those five things that he gave us right there really are, are, are elements that we're going to look at this morning that are going to describe who Christ Jesus is. What's interesting, five is, and we've talked about this on previous programs, five is the number of grace. And we talked about it yesterday that we're saved by grace through faith. God's divine influence is what grace is, and it's reflection in our life. And so what you're going to see is him being a faithful witness, him being the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, that he loved us and he washed us from our sins with his own blood, is God's divine influence uh, uh, spoken out to us. And so the first thing I want you to look at, really before we even get into the kind of these defining these elements or, uh, or characteristics, is the context of this content. So we've got content in verse 5, but we've got context in the whole of this book for for what we need to do really is kind of go up let's going to go up a verse and we're going to read it prior uh, to this to see exactly what it said it said in, in verse four it says john to the seven churches which are in asia grace be unto you and peace from him which is and was and is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and we talked about this in detail if you weren't here this would be available to you in the next day or so we discussed yesterday that this letter is presented or uh, attributed to god uh, or the Godhead, I should say, the, tri the, the Trinity, the tri-nature of the Godhead, in, in a certain way. Number one, it came from the Father, it went through the Son, and it's delivered by the Spirit. It came from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. What is so important about this is that the, the unity or the solidarity of who God is as revealed by His nature, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is immediately established in this opening salvo. You, you, we've got to establish who he is. We talked about yesterday when at creation, let us, let us create, let Elohim, that, that singular plurality that's attributed to the Godhead, that, that first 
tipping of the hand, of, so to speak, of, of, of the Trinity in, in, in Genesis chapter 1. Then we see it right here in Revelation chapter 1 as well. But, but, but you have also got to see not only who is described here, but how he is described here. And the first one you'll see, and we talked about this in detail yesterday, I'm just going to touch on it for just a second. It says, the, the Father is called something. It's called Him who is, which was, and is to come. Is, was, is to come. And so if I had to give you one word to describe the Father based upon the context of that, I would say He's eternal. And so you've got to put that Father equals eternal. Now look, it says the Spirit. The Spirit uh, is seven spirits before His throne. We talked about in detail about this. We came out of the, the book of Isaiah uh, yesterday. And this, this seven, is, is, it speaks of his perfection, his totality. And so if I had to describe the spirit, I'd also say, based upon content, he's eternal. Now, here's the element that we're going to be looking at in this fifth verse today. That's where cultic teachers, uh, cults, false religions have mishandled, misappropriated, have misinterpreted this word of truth. And we, we, we've got to get our hands around this. If, if you guys have ever had the, the quote-unquote occasional Mormon come to your door, or the, the Jehovah Witness, whoever it might be, uh, and, 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 and begin to talk about Scripture, a lot of times what you're going to find is anything that is contrary to what this word teaches, the, the first thing that they're going to do is strike at who Jesus is. And so we've always got to come back to that place of describing and knowing exactly who he is. And not only being able to say it, but, but knowing through the word of God what defends that position. Just like he established, God is called eternal. The spirit of God is called eternal. And so the next part of that verse, it says, right here in our thing, it says, and from Jesus. And so we're just going to key in on those three words right now, and from Jesus. And talking about the, the triunity, the trinity, the the the... The, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. And I, I want to say this, folks. In order for there to be unity within the Godhead, there must be conformity. In order for there to be unity, there's got to be conformity. You know, Romans tells us, don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we can prove out what is the good and acceptable will of God. And so if I'm, if I'm conformed to this world, what am I going to be? I'm going to be in unity. I'm going to be in, in agreement with the world. But if I'm conformed to the image of his son Jesus, I'm going to be in unity and agreement with him. We talked about Amos 3.3. How can two walk together except they be in agreement? There would be some type of, of conformity or confirmation within them. And, and, and there also must be shared central characteristics. And so there's got to be a conformity. And, and within that conformity, it's going to provide shared characteristics that, that really is kind of uh, administered or carried out throughout this, the Trinity. And so here's what I'll give you. The, the shared characteristic that must be present for that unity has got to be the eternal nature. It's got to be the eternal nature. And you can write that down. The shared characteristic that must be present within the Godhead is the eternal nature of those within the Godhead. That is, all the members must share the common characteristic of having always been. Okay, God has got to have always been. The Holy Spirit has got to have always been. Jesus Christ has got to have always always been. And so what has happened is that, that cult and cultic groups, and what I mean by that cultic groups is there's people within that call themselves Christian that don't necessarily believe or aspire to the, 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 the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. They, they, they'll say that, well, you know, he is the son of God. He's been created by God, but he's not necessarily God. Now, to some of them, it's, that, that may sound, oh, that, that sounds pretty true. But folks, listen, if you, if you believe that, if you believe that, that Jesus is not God made manifest in the flesh or Emmanuel, you're, you're missing the whole thing. And what you're doing is you're, you're denigrating the blood of Jesus. And basically, you're nullifying the effect that it could have in your life, which is a, a kind of a dangerous proposition. And so what they've done is they've attempted to either eliminate that central characteristics of the eternal nature of God or to kind of obscure its presence and importance in regard to God actually, who God actually is. Like I mentioned, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, they do not consider that Jesus or the Holy Spirit uh, as equal to God the Father. They see Jesus, Jesus as a created being who has an origin apart from the, the eternal characteristics of God. And then many of them just believe that the Holy Spirit is not just not a member of the Godhead at all, but merely just a spiritual force that's been emitted from God. Other groups, we can talk about the, the, the Muslims, Hindus, etc. What they've done is they've reduced the role of Jesus Christ altogether, and they've either called him just a prophet of God, they've called him a good man, 
they, they, they've called him all these things, uh, but what they've done, uh, some have even called him a, just a delusional religious fanatic. But the one thing that, that most of those groups will not do is say that Jesus is eternal. Because with, with, if he's eternal, then what happens is they've got to give his words and his sacrifice the credibility that, that are commensurate with eternity. And so they have to eliminate those things. And so more, kind of more, more of a subtle thing that's happened within the, the, the ranks of what can, some would consider acceptable Christianity in, in that, that what they've done is, is maybe even unwittingly to begin with, what they've done is they've circumvented the true nature of the Godhead through teaching from, from Revelation 1.5. I'm going to look at some of these elements right now. I'm going to show you how they've, they've done that. The, uh, he is the faithful witness, the, only, uh, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth. He loved us, and he washed us from all of his sins. Folks, I want to say this. All of these things are given as a description of Jesus. And so let's look at that first one. He is the faithful witness. Now, now keep in mind, all of these things I'm giving you are to establish his eternal nature. Okay? So he is the faithful witness. You know, folks, that, that phrase right there for me, what it does, it, it brings out the description of Jesus that really sets him apart from any created being. And so if I just told you that he is the faithful witness, would you be able to grab a hold of his eternal nature? Well, you will be here in just a minute. What it does is it's going to stand to confirm uh, really some passages in, in, uh, in Scripture that are attributed to him. And I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to separate faithful and witness just for a second. And I'm going to talk about he is faithful. Now go to Isaiah 49.7. Isaiah 49.7. He is faithful. How does him being faithful say that he is eternal? Glad you asked. I'm fixing to tell you. Isaiah 49.7 says this. It says, Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel... And his Holy One, to him who man despised, to whom who the nations abhorred, hated, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes shall also worship, because of the Lord that is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose you. Now, I want to go back and read that, Isaiah 49, 7. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel. Who is that Redeemer kinsman? Who is the, the Redeemer of mankind? We know that it's Jesus Christ and his Holy One to whom man despised. We know from the book of Isaiah that he would be rejected, he had despised, and whom the nation hated. His own people rejected him. To a servant of rulers, uh, kings shall see and arise, princes shall also worship, because the Lord is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, he shall choose you. In other words, Jesus is the one that chooses us. You see the eternal nature of that. Now look at Jeremiah 42.5. Jeremiah 42.5 says this. Then they said to Jeremiah, the Lord be true and faithful witness between us, if we do not uh, even according to all uh, things which for which the Lord that God shall send us to. And so not only is he he's told that he does faithful, but he's called that he is true and faithful. Now look at Hebrews 10.23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Hebrews 10.23. I'll give you another scripture and we'll start tying those, those four together. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, it says, Faithful is he that calls you who also will do it. Okay, folks, faithfulness is obviously connected to the truthfulness of God. We know faith, by definition, by, by, by its Greek definition, is the moral conviction of the truthfulness of God. So I know faithfulness is obviously connected to truthfulness. That faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. I have to believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who are diligent in seeking him. So my faithfulness is built up through my diligence in seeking him and seeking after the truth of God. So if I know a truth, if, if I know that I shouldn't lie and it becomes real to me, what I'm going to be faithful to that truth. If I know that I should love my, my, my brothers, I love myself, and that becomes truth to me, I'm going to be faithful in that truth. So whatever the truth that God reveals to me, my, my faithfulness is going to be based upon my revelation of that truth. But folks, it's not only just uh, uh, connected to our, our, our the, the understanding of, of truth, but it's, all connect, it's also connected to the obedience of the truthfulness of God. And so if I'm going to be faithful, it can't just mean that I believe what God says. It believes that I'm going to be obedient to everything that God says. And folks, listen, this is, this is important because mere belief is really not the telling point of faithfulness. Obedience to that belief is proof that the belief actually exists. Now, I want to say that again. Belief is not the telling point of faithfulness. Obedience to that belief is the proof that belief actually exists. I'll tell you why I say that. A lot of people claim to be, quote-unquote, Christians. 
Okay, you, you, I hear it all the time. I witness on the streets all over this nation and other nations as well. You'll talk to people and people will say, well, I believe in God or I am a, a Christian. Then, then you take them to the Word of God. You take them to, like, say, for instance, 1 John 1 and 6, where it says, if I say that I have fellowship with Him, if I say I have koinonia with Him, but I walk in darkness, then I lie and do not the truth. He said that they'll know that you love me if you keep my commands. He said, how can you say that you love God who you've not seen, but hate your brother who you have seen? And so I can say something, but unless my life uh, uh, is a testimony or testifies or bears record, as we talked about yesterday, of that faith and through obedience, what does it do? If I know that the word of God tells if I be, say I believe the word of God and the word of God tells me that, that I'm an a ambassador for Christ Jesus, that I'm obligated because of my belief to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, that those that are believing or baptized shall be saved and those that are not shall be damned. If I believe that as a, as, a, as, a, as a believer in what the Word says, that I'm obligated to tell other people about Christ. I'm obligated to study the Word because the Word tells me to study to show myself approved unto God. It tells me to pray without ceasing according to 1 Thessalonians 5.17. All these things. But if I'm not doing those things, am I really a believer? Well, I'm glad you asked. James chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. James 2, 19 to 20. Let's see. You believe, got anybody that believes today, that there is one God. James said, good. But then he said, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? So what James was saying is, he says, listen, you, you say you believe that there's one God. But that just puts you in good company. That, uh, that puts you in the company of the demons that believe that because they've seen that and they shudder. But in their believing that, there's no obedience to that. Otherwise, they would not have obviously rebelled with Lucifer and been, been cast out of heaven. And he says, are you so foolish to think that your faith without deeds is, is, or, or the, the obedience to that is, is going to uh, uh, depict your real true belief? Folks, listen. You know, we, we, we used to say in the world, you can talk the talk, but you better be able to walk the walk as well. And so I can lay claim to Christianity. The Word tells me if any man desires to be a disciple, he's got to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him, obey him, do exactly what he says. You know, you think about in this within local politics, state government, even on the national level, all these people, you know, claim to be Christians, but their, their policies, their lifestyles, all these things are contrary to the Word of God. And so I have to measure all those things through what he says, not through what they said. If they claim to be a believer, well, I believe in God. Well, you do good, but the demons believe and shudder. And so you, you see that on this, this, this big scale. People want to attribute his name because they believe that it, it provides them some type of benefit, just like, quote, unquote, Christians do. But at the end of the day, is our faith going to be evidenced by what we've done through that faith? And so Jesus was called faithful in his eternal nature because he was faithful. Yes. Now, folks, you're going to only be called faithful as you are faithful. Who is going to be faithful? The Word of God says when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? He's going to look for a faithfulness in the life of his people. And so we've got to be obedient. Jesus was faithful because he uh, uh, was called faithful because he was faithful. Now, look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It says this. It says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Folks, we have got to have the mind of Christ. We've got to say to ourselves, You know what, God? I, I, you, you've got to give me an understanding of your words. You've got to give me an understanding of the signs of the times. You, you've got to make me not be swayed, Lord God, by circumstances or things that I see in the natural. Lord God, you've got to give me your mind. And it says, we, we, Let a, this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself, here he is, here's the incarnation, of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. What was the precursor to be made in the likeness of men? He was in the form of God. God is eternal. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. There's the faithfulness of God even upon the death of the cross. Now, now, you're going to have to look at this. This is powerful. Whereby God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, you know, you've talked to people a lot of times and they've said, well, you know, I believe, you know, Jesus is the Savior, he's this, but he's not God. 
Now, if you ever just need a proof text to remember, always take them right here to Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I'm going to show you why. Because this verse alone right here reveals the faithful obedience of Jesus Christ, but it also reveals the eternal nature of who he is. Now, it says this. He said he became obedient. He became, what did it say? Faithful. He's been given a name above every name. Names in heaven, names in earth, that every knee should bow, and that every tongue should confess his lordship. Now, if I just stopped and asked you the question today, how does that prove that he's eternal? How does it prove that Jesus wasn't just, just the Son of God, but Jesus is God made manifest in the flesh? How does that, how does that prove it? Would, would you have an answer for me? Let's give you a pause because you're not going to answer right here, but I'm going to answer it to you. Well, I'm fixing to give it. Here's why it's so important. Go to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 5. You know it's in Exodus 20. It's, the, it's when he begins to give us the Ten Commandments. Now, look what it says in the Ten Commandments. Now, I told you yesterday there's two interesting things that we can look in the Scripture. We know here that this is a letter, that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ as given by, by, by God the Father, gave unto him. I told you there's two things in, in the Scripture. One, when it talks about things that God wrote. We know that the Scripture, all 1,179 chapters, 31,101 verses, are the Theonustos. They're God-breathed. But there's two, there's two places in Scripture that are, that are really unique. One is right here in the Exodus when he gave the Ten Commandments. It said that God wrote it with his own finger. That the, that the, 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 the authority and the authorship derived directly from God himself. We see he right here in, in, in Revelation 1.1. It says this is the revelation that God gave concerning his son, Jesus. So we see these two instances. And so to tie the, the revelation together with who God, uh, Jesus is, let's look at the other instance. It says, and, and God, that's the, uh, the Hebrew word Elohim. It's that singular plurality. It's the same, let Elohim create man in his own image. Let us create man in his own image. It says, and God spake all these words. He said this. He said, I am the Lord thy God, which has brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And you shall have no other gods before me. Okay? How many other gods? Does it say no other gods uh, uh, unless that they are uh, sub subject to me? Is that what it said? It didn't say that at all, does it? It says none whatsoever. It says, you shall not make unto me any graven image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water beneath. Now, look what it says in verse 5. It says, You shall not bow down yourself to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And so, folks, let me say this. For Jesus to receive worship, he had to be God. Right? What does it say there in Philippians 2? It says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that what? He is Lord. And so for Jesus to receive worship, he had to be God. Why? Because God commanded, number one, that no one shall bow before anyone but him. And so, so if God, if, so if Jesus is God, then he has to be what? Eternal. And so what we're doing is we're establishing the, the, the eternal nature of Christ Jesus. Now, you may not see the importance today in this, this hour-long class, but what you're going to do, as you continue in the Word of God and as the, 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 the times and the seasons draw closer to the returning of the Lord Jesus Christ, what you're going to see is you're going to have to hold on to that. Why? Because that's going to be challenged on every front. It's going to be challenged by false religion. It's going to be challenged by government. It's going to be challenged by everything. It's going to be challenged in your own heart. So you've got to come down to, I'm, I'm understanding the eternal nature of who Jesus is. For Jesus to receive worship, he has to be God. And if he is God, he has got to be eternal. Let's look at another verse in Exodus. Exodus 34:14. He adds this. He said, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And so for God to allow Jesus to be worshipped, it must mean that, what? Jesus is God himself. And so it says that, 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 that he is faithful. He is a faithful witness, is our first point there. Folks, listen. He is faithful, and this faithfulness is manifest in the fact that, that he's also a witness to that faithfulness. If you remember yesterday, we talked about that word witness. And we, we say right here at, the, at the, the revelation or the unveiling of who Jesus is, the beginning of this unveiling. He gave it to us at the beginning or the birth of the church in Acts 1 and 8. And he said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit, you'll receive dunamis, miracle working power. You'll, you'll, you'll be able to do things beyond your natural ability when the Spirit of God has come upon you and you shall be a witness. You shall be that, that martos, that martus, that martyrios when the Spirit of God comes upon you. And, and so we 
see right here, he is the faithful witness. And witness, once again, it's, it, we get our word martyr from. And, and martyr, you, if you remember the definition from yesterday, it says, one who makes great sacrifices or suffers much in order to further a belief, cause, or principle. Now, now folks, we as believers, we as Christians, there's, there's the ultimate martyr, the one that ultimately gave, made the greatest sacrifice suffered the most in order to further a belief, the belief in who he was, that he was the, the redeemer of mankind, that faith in Jesus Christ and him alone that, that, that would redeem us from the curse of the law for a cause or that principle. And so, folks, his faithfulness was not just revealed apart from his sacrifice. His faithfulness was revealed as a result of his sacrifice. And so if I want to be faithful to him, what do I do? Romans 12.1, it says that we are to present ourselves, our bodies, as a living sacrifice unto him, which is just our reasonable service. And so with Jesus, his, his faithfulness was, was revealed as a result of his sacrifice. He showed just who he was, who, how faithful he was as that faithful witness willing to lay down his life, and all those things attributed to the eternal nature of who he is. So you might ask yourself, are you saying that he was not characterized as, as faithful witness before going to the cross? I said that he was, his faithfulness was required by a sacrifice. So are you saying that he wasn't faithful before that? No, just the opposite. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying because of his character, which was eternal and holy, and, and what it was and is, meaning the death upon the cross, only revealed what eternally, eternity had already revealed. Do you not re, uh, understand that he was, he was described throughout eternity as that, that faithful witness, that, that sacrificial lamb? What does it say in Revelation 13.8? Jesus is called the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so even who he was was seen, it was characterized in, 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 in him through the, the theophanies or the, the revelation of Jesus. That you saw him, you saw, you saw Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. That was a theophany, that was Christ uh, before he, he, he came incarnate as, as Jesus. You see throughout the, the, the Old Testament all these theophanies, you see his, his faithfulness. But we, we also see in the tabernacle and in the temple that we discussed, uh, the, the, the actions, the, the slaying the lamb, all that stuff was, was indicative of the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that he was going to be the one that made a sacrifice uh, and, and to give himself to further the cause or the belief of restoring people back unto his father. So he became the sacrifice, that martus, even before the sacrifice was needed. Now, now think about that for a second, folks. He became our sacrifice before the sacrifice was needed. Now, here's what I want to say to you guys. You've got to become faithful before your faithfulness is tested. Can I say that again? You've got to learn to be faithful before your faithfulness is tested. And that's what God is doing in our lives right now. You know, we, we, we talked about the word yesterday that says, In this world you're going to suffer tribulation, but do not fear because he's overcome the world. I don't know what you've gone through. Maybe you've gone through some physical difficulties, financial problems, the economy being what it is, or, or you're disappointed or excited about the, the, the political things that have unfolded the last few days. Regardless of those things, none of those things are, can compare to, to the trials that, that, that are on the horizon, folks. I just, I just got to tell you that. And I don't tell you that to scare you. I tell you that to encourage you that you need to become faithful before your faith is put on trial. We, we know from the Word of God, it says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial that some strange thing has come upon you. The fiery trial is our inheritance. It's the expectancy that the believer should have. We should expect to go through those things and have all that, that, that dross and those things uh, burned out of our life that, that would, would, would cause us to be contrary to the Word of God. And so we've got, to, we've got to become sacrificial in our lives even before the sacrifice is demanded. And so it says, He is the faithful witness. Faithful witness determines who He was eternally. Now here's the kicker, folks. The second one says that He is the first begotten of the dead. He is the first begotten of the dead. If I, if I put out right now and I said, Listen, what do you think that means? He is the first begotten of the dead. You know, I, I'm confident. What did you say, studio? He rose, first. he rose first from the dead? Okay, he rose first from the dead. Now, most people would probably agree with what my studio audience, Raven Deb, just said. It means he's the first that, that rose from the dead. Now, how many of you would, would agree with that? Nobody will do that because they think that I'm setting them up. Now, now folks, the second one I'm talking about, and I'm going I'm to talk about that in just a second. 
The, the, the second one, this first begotten of the dead, is where many Christians that have become very popular in, in their teaching have really gone off the deep end and really served to undermine the, the gospel by preaching heresy. You know, they teach things like this. They teach that Jesus was the first born-again man. So when they say well, he's the first begotten dead, Jesus had to be born again in hell. They teach that he abandoned his divine nature upon the cross and that he suffered at the, the hands of Satan for three days in hell. All of those things are completely false. They, they teach because they don't understand the scripture. When Jesus hung up on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They think that that means that, that he abandoned who he was. And some of you probably think that or have thought that in the past because you've not written, uh, read, uh, read the 22nd Psalm where Jesus is characterized, he said, listen, here's what they're going to think. You've forsaken me. But he goes on to describe that. That's why you've got to know the whole of the word to understand those type of things. And so what they've done is they've pulled things out of context and they've changed the characteristics of who he was. They pulled little verses like, well, he's the first begotten of the dead. That means that, that God turned his back on Jesus and all these things. That I can show you clearly, and I've done it many times, that that just is not the case. And if you really look into the word of God, you'll say to yourself, how did I believe that? Well, you just had never put the Word of God together the way it needs to be done. And so what they've done is they've teached those things. And so I want to explain to you this morning, hopefully in the best way that I can, and show you what it means that he was the first begotten of the dead and where those those false teachers cannot be correct in their views uh, uh, or what they believe in. That first begotten, or some of your Bibles or translations may say firstborn, here is, is a title that's actually given to mean the one who has the right of inheritance. It's the one who has the right of inheritance. And so if I said that he is the one who has the right of inheritance of the dead, and I ask you what that meant, you would say something totally different, wouldn't you? Because we think that this first begotten of the dead, we are, we're always associating it with just strictly the resurrection, which there's, there's a, there's, there is a, a, an element of that in that. But what if I say he has the, he, he's got the one... Uh, that has the right or the first inheritance. Folks, listen, the firstborn in, in Hebrew culture always was the one who got the inheritance. They were the ones that, that had the birthright. You look at Jacob and Esau. You know, Jacob called the supplanter. Why? Because he wanted to take the, the birthright or the right of inheritance from his brother Esau. And he, as you, you know the story, that he, he, he tricked his father into believing that he was his brother and he got the blessing upon him. And, and Esau said, you know, you've not only stole my birthright, or my, my inheritance, but you've also taken my, my blessing as well. And so we, we see that within that culture. And so when we, we look at this, we've got to also see it through those same eyes. We've got to see he's talking about that, 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 that one who has a right of inheritance. I'm going to show you why that is. That, that word first begotten is the word prototokos. P-R-O-T-O-T-P-R-O-T-O-T-O-K-O-S. And what it's used to, it's, it's used in some other scriptures that I think is going to give you some, uh, really an enlightenment here. You know, we see it there as the first begotten of the dead. And I'm going to show you where it's the one that has the right inheritance. And look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 19. Colossians 1, 12 through 19. Here's what it says. It says, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Okay? Thanks be unto the Father, which has made us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And so, folks, listen, we have an inheritance. We are heirs together with Christ Jesus and joint heirs together with Christ. He tells us in John chapter 1 that said he was the light of the world, but his light became the light of men. Let's tie it all together. Then look at verse 13 of Colossians 1. Who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us unto the kingdom of his dear son. Okay? Translated us into the kingdom, that place of his inheritance, in whom we have redemption through the blood, even the forgiveness of sin. Who is, verse 15, I'm going to keep reading down through there, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Okay? Now, now let me look at the exact same word right there. Firstborn of every creature is the word, the same word that's used as first begotten from the dead. Now, look at the context of saying he's the firstborn of every creature. Now, is it talking about his raising from the dead? Or is it talking about the inheritance that we have under the kingdom through the redemption of his blood. Now you see the context now. For by him, verse 16, verse 16 were all things created. How many things were created? By him. All things that are in heaven, that are in earth, whether they be visible, whether they be invisible, whether they be thrones, whether they be dominions, whether they be principalities or power, all things were created by him and for him. 
And he, speaking of Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning and, once again, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should dwell all the fullness of the Godhead. Now, folks, preeminence, basically it means dominance. It means uh, incomparability. There's nothing that, that compares to him. It's a primacy. It's a, it's a superiority. It's a greatness. It's, a, it, it's all those things. It's the, 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 the top thing. Now, folks, think about that when we're talking about the, the, the eternal nature of who Jesus Christ is. For him to be preeminent, he has got to be God. He is, that's who he is. He, because there's have no other gods before who? God. So he can't just be a, 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 a God subject to, to God the Father. And if he's God, he has got to be eternal. So as the first begotten from the dead, he has been given the preeminence or the ultimate authority, dominion in regards to what? In regards to redeeming his inheritance. And so when I say he is the first begotten of the, the dead, I'm saying that, listen... He's got first, let me just put it this way, he's got first choice on everything. And so, uh, many are called, but few are chosen. How does he choose those? He chooses those that, that through faith in him and through repentance and belief in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, he chooses us for his inheritance. And he has the right to choose us for his inheritance because of who he is. He is a faithful and true witness. He is the first begotten of the dead. He is superior. He is, uh, he is, uh, has an incomparability. He is a, he is a primacy above every other thing. He is the, the Lord God and above him there is none other. And because folks of this unprecedented, this unequal position, as a result of that, talking about what Deb said, I want to, I want to pull that in. I don't want to tell you you're totally wrong, but death as a result could not hold him. Why? Because he has preeminence over death. He has preeminence. He has superiority, supremacy over everything because there was nothing including death that was created that he didn't create. And so the, the, the servant is never greater than the master. And so because he created death as the creator of all things, Jesus Christ, and all things were made by him and for him, and in all things consist through him, death could not hold him because death was even subject to him. Now, for me, that, that's powerful because I know in, in whom I believe. I, I know in whom I put my faith. Now, think about what... Pardon? And we inherit that, we inherit that because we're joining us together with Christ Jesus. If that same spirit that raised up Christ Jesus from the dead dwell in you, it will also quicken your mortal, uh, uh, mortal body. Now, look. let me tie that together with you in Acts 2, 23-24. It says, Him being determined, being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He, you have taken and with wicked hands you have crucified and slain him, who God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not even possible that he should be holden of it. Folks, listen, it was not possible for death to behold him because he is the first begotten of the dead. That is, he has the preeminence and dominion even in that realm, and that's an attribute that can only be given to the eternal God and he's the only one that can be in possession of it. And, and so there, there's the, the power of death could not hold him because he had domination in that place. And so for these false teachers that say, well, you know what? He got drugged down and, and he was dominant. He was not dominating that place. The scripture says that no one took his life. He gave it, that he willfully went to the cross. The only reason he went to the cross is because he dominated that situation. He, he, it says that on the cross, in his place of domination over the things of the world, over his preeminence, his primacy, his superiority, it says that he defeated Satan, that he made a show of him openly, that he, he defeated him right there, triumphing over him in the cross. So, folks, whether it was uh, when he was uh, dead in the grave, he had preeminence. Whether he was on the cross, he had preeminence. He's sitting on a throne in glory right now. He has preeminence. And the only one that can have preeminence is God, and God is eternal. Can somebody say amen this morning? So he's faithful witness. He's the first begotten of the dead. And he is the prince of peace, the prince, excuse me, the prince of the kings of the earth. He's the prince of the kings of the earth. And so, obviously, this, is, this speaks of his superior place among all powers and authorities. But, but what's interesting about that, when you hear the word prince in, in, in our language or in our culture, or if you think about it in regards to the, the monarchy in, in England or wherever it may be, it, it, it doesn't have the same meaning as it does here in the Greek. 
You know, we think of princes as kind of understudies to the king or, or the sons of the king or even kings that are in waiting for the opportunity to serve upon the death of their predecessor. And so when I talk about a prince and I say to you, I said, you know what, man, that, that, that person's the, the prince of Great Britain. You're not going to think of him as the preeminent monarch in Great Britain because of our language. But actually what's interesting about that, the word actually in the Greek is the word archon, A-R-C-H-O-N. And that word that's translated by the uh, by the, 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 the English uh, translators actually should have been the chief ruler or commander. And so it says he is, it should say, he is the chief ruler and commander of the kings of the earth. Kind of changes things up just a little bit. Now, them, they probably understood within the, the because uh, when this was translated by English, they were in a monarchy, so they understood the, the authority of that position. We don't because we look at it from afar. And so it means the chief ruler or commander uh, of the kings of the earth. Now, look at 1 Timothy 6.15. 1 Timothy 6.15. I'll show you elsewhere where it says the exact same thing. It said, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, you know what potentate is? He's ruling officer, the top dog. He's the, the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And so he's the, the chief ruling officer. He's the king over kings. He's the lords over lords. He's not just the prince or the understudy or the, the king in waiting to the kings of the earth. He is over all of them. Revelation 11, chapter uh, 15, tells us that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of Christ, and he shall reign forever. We know that the, that, the, that the government shall be upon his shoulders, and to it there shall be no end. In other words, he has got the full authority, he's got the, the, the full power, he's got the, the full benefits of everything relating to his kingdom. So he is the faithful witness, he's the first begotten of the dead, he is the prince of the kings of the earth, he has preeminence, he loved us. Now, now I can, I can I gave you those those first three right there. He's faithful witness, first begotten of the dead, prince of the kings of the earth, and you can see how those things describe his eternal nature. But when I say he loved us, would you immediately be able to say how does that prove out that Jesus is eternal, that he loved us? Because you think, well, I love somebody, I have this type of love. Well, I'm glad you asked. Because, folks, this is also a characteristic attributed to him that's going to reveal his nature. Now, let's look at John three sixteen. John three sixteen. You know it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's that first begotten, there's the one with the, the inheritance, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know that, okay? Now look at 1 John 4, 7 and 8. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. God loved the world, right? And he gave his son. Beloved, now let us love one another, for love is of God. Love is an attribute, a characteristic. And everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loves not does not know God, for God is loved. And so it says that he loved us, right? Demonstrating that that's a characteristic of who God is. And the only genuine love is love that emits from the Father. Now look at John fifteen, thirteen. Greater love has no man than this. The man that laid down his life for his friend. Who's that speaking of? That's speaking of Jesus. And so the greatness of love, if God so loved the world, and there's no greater love than what Jesus demonstrated, that tells me that Jesus had to have been who? Jesus had to have been God. And if he's God, then he is. He's eternal. And so if God is love, and there's no greater love than what Jesus did upon the cross, then Jesus must be God, and therefore must be eternal, because God is eternal. Now you see how that just makes sense? And I, and I stayed with, 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 with letters that John wrote so you can kind of see how he's continued that thought all the way into the, 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 the unveiling of the revelation. And so it says he's the faithful witness. He's the first begotten of the dead. He's the prince of the kings of the earth. He loved us. And the fifth thing, it says he washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, once again, if I threw that out to you and I said, well, how does that prove who he is and how, that he's eternal? Well, thank you for asking because I'm fixing to show you. It's out of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. Hebrews 9, 22 through 28. Here's what he said. He said, almost all things by the law are purged with blood. And because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. In other words, 
what, what's going to happen has got to be resembled or, uh, or, or got to be reflective of what would be required in the heavenly realm. For Christ has not entered into the holy place which made with hands. In other words, his sacrifice isn't, wasn't pushed into a drape on the Day of Atonement. His sacrifice was, was, was sacrificing himself upon the altar in heaven. And so Christ not entered the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor that, that he should offer himself often as a high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have often uh, have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what that's saying is, listen, he didn't have to do like the high priest did. Go in every single year and make a sacrifice. It says that he did it one time. Why? Because it had been through the predeterminate counsel of God that he would be the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Now he once appeared. He went to the cross one time to put away sin as a sacrifice for himself. Once again, his faithfulness is is through the obedience of his sacrifice. Verse 27, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that shall look... uh, the look for him shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. In other words, if you believe his sacrifice, that when he appears the second time, that you're going to appear unto him without sin unto salvation. And so, folks, you know, when I, when I talk about, and we've talked about this out of First John 3, that it says that, that, that he who commits sin is of the devil, that, that he is born again does not sin. And people say, well, listen, I, I'm not perfect. Well, well, you're not perfect unless you believe in the one that has been perfected. He tells us that he's, he's given some to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry. He tells us in the book of Hebrews, once again, he tells us that, that he has perfected forever them that are being sanctified. Sanctified by what? Our own good works? Absolutely not. I can, I can sit here and say I'm perfect today because I'm not dependent upon the works of Troy Bond. Troy Bond, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. But I've been born again and transformed by him. And I'm perfect because he's called me perfect. I'm holy because... He's called me holy. I'm sanctified and I'm perfected through the blood of Jesus. And so my faithfulness and and, and my my faith is in the eternal nature of who he is. And my perfection is summed up in what Jesus did upon the cross, not by the works of my own hands. Why? Because I'm saved by God's divine influence upon my heart and its reflection in my life through the, the moral conviction of the truthfulness of God. In other words, I'm saved by grace through faith, not of good works, lest any man should boast, but I'm his workmanship. Created unto good works. And those good works, every good, every perfect gift comes down from God the Father of lights, who there's no shadow of turning in. And so I've got to believe who he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But who is he? He's God. He's eternal. He's, he's the one from the foundation of the world who's redeemed me from the curse of the law. And I've become, uh, 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 become a victor and validated in heaven because of who he is. But if I ever d- the diminish who he is by saying, well, he's not totally God or, or he's not eternal or, or he doesn't have the attributes of God, what do I do? I, I diminish and I, I, I completely destroy my, my ability to lay claim to that inheritance as a co-laborer together with Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to give you something else real quick. We've got just a little bit of time. First Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19. First Peter 1, 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received from the traditions of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Okay, so there's that redemption that we have without spot. And so here's the, here's the deal, folks. I'm going to close with this this morning. Here's the most important thing we've got to realize in this. Galatians chapter 6, 7 and 8. Galatians 6, 7 and 8. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. You, you know that. You know that well. Now look at the next verse. Because I can't have verse 7 and eliminate verse 8. For he that sows to his flesh shall reap of the flesh corruption, but he that sows of the Spirit shall reap of the Spirit everlasting life. Now, how does that tie into this eternal nature? Well, it says if I sow of the Spirit, I'm going to reap everlasting life. Let me say this to you, folks. Jesus must be eternal for his blood to have paid a spiritual price. You see what I'm saying? Jesus had to be eternal for his blood to pay a spiritual price. The reason for this, if he had been created, then he would not have been eternal. Okay? He would have been temporal. And his blood, therefore, could have only paid or had a temporal benefit. Do you understand what I'm saying there? Jesus had to have been eternal for his blood to have had an eternal benefit. Why? 
Because whatever a man sows, he shall reap. And so if eternal blood is sowed into my life, eternal life is reaped out of that blood. If Jesus was created or temporal or he wasn't eternal, all it would sow is temporal blood like the blood of, of bullocks and the blood of lambs, corruptible things like silver and gold, and I would not have had an eternal benefit from that blood. Folks, I hope that you can get that. We're, we're totally out of time this morning. I know that's, that's a lot to, to ingest in a short amount of time, but I'm, I'm hoping you can go back later and, and get, the, get that recording off that once it's uh, on the website. Or you, you can request. I'll even email you my notes that I, that I type up for this. But, uh, folks, you've got to get a hold of that, that whole nature of who Jesus Christ is because that is the revelation. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And part of that process of unveiling who he is is unveiling him in his eternal nature and who he is. That's what we're going to do. We told you the revelation is not the revelation of the Antichrist or anything else. It's the unveiling of Jesus. And verse 5 does so much to show us and unveil uh, certain characteristics of who he is uh, that are going to establish the rest of these 22 chapters as we study the Word of God. Folks, thank you guys so much for, for being with us this morning. Like I said, if you have questions, prayer requests, don't forget to send them in. You can send either one of them in to raven at biggrace.com, R-A-V-E-N at biggrace.com. That's B-I-G-G-R-A-C-E.com. If you're live, it's right there on the screen. If you have prayer requests, send them in as well. We want to pray and believe God for you. Uh, uh, if you want to receive our previous teachings, from this, just email me and give me your snail mail address. I'll be glad to send you our... We just did 197 hours on the Book of Romans. I'd love to put that in your hands. We love you folks, and we hope to see you tomorrow at 9 o'clock a.m. Eastern Standard Time for another uh, uh, edition of our study in the, in the Book of the Revelation. Love you guys so much. You've got one bit of advice for you, as I always do. Get into God's Word, and God's Word will be in the end.